0: Well, good morning, Church on the Rock. Good morning. Good morning, hope you're doing well this morning. My name is Tim, and it's my honor and privilege to, uh, to be speaking to you this morning and to share something from the Word of God with us as we begin today. Um, this is an interesting time of year. I can't believe it's already part way through October, and yet here we are. Uh, and as a father of four, this is a fascinating time of year where every time I walk into a store, I wonder which of my children is going to be scared and by what. Uh, because every store has something spooky in it. There are things that when you walk in, they jump at you. Uh, they make weird noises. There's, there's masks and there's costumes and there's something somewhere that inevitably is gonna scare one of them. Uh, and we're gonna have to deal with nightmares, which is fantastic. Um, it always reminds me of when I was in, when I was in high school, uh, I went to a fairly conservative church, so I'm not sure why they put on a haunted forest, but they did. Uh, I think it was because it was a really good gospel message at the end of it, you know, don't be scared, Jesus loves you. Which is true, don't be scared, Jesus loves you. Um, and you know they put on this haunted forest, and I remember, uh, I remember going and, and we went to this big farmhouse. Uh, and, and at the farmhouse, and they put us on a hay wagon, and they took you back into the creepy woods, and it was something. Now, I, I got to admit, I know like, I, I know you're, you look at me, and you say, well, he's a big, strong, impressive man. <laughs> Thank you. It's true. But also, I don't like being scared. Like that. When my wife and I first got married, we had to make a deal to each other that she would never jump out and scare me, um, because my physical response is this, which is not a good idea. Um, and so I asked her not to do that. So I don't, I, I don't typically like being scared, and yet... All of my friends were going to this event, so I was like, well, of course I'm going to go because I'm not going to miss a haunted forest. And so I remember getting on this hay wagon, not too excited to be there, uh, and being put back in, into the woods, and, and I put in a group with this other guy who for some reason I wanted to impress. I don't remember why, but that's fine. And two girls, one of which I thought was quite cute. And so you can imagine now I find myself in this situation where I have to, I have to put on a really brave face for a thing that I really don't want to do. And I remember they, they, it was our group's turn to go. They would send us off into the woods in little pockets of people. And it was like, you four, go now into the abyss. I'm like, well, okay. And so off we went and we started kind of walking down this journey. And, and you know, at this point, nothing had happened yet. So I was feeling pretty brave still, right? Nothing had jumped out at me. Nothing had scared me. So I was like, I'm quite confident. I will be just fine. And so we're walking down this forest path. And, and at some point we're trying to figure out, now where are we supposed to turn? And at that moment when we're trying to assess which direction do we go, I heard from behind a stump, a sound that I don't to this day like, and it went kind of like this. Somebody jumped out at me with a chainsaw. And I gotta tell you, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I told you about a time when I went parasailing, and I, I explained to you as again, as you can probably tell, I'm not built to run. And yet at that moment, when that took off, I found wheels all of a sudden and I took off running down this path as fast as my feet could carry me. Now, at this point, this was a very interesting decision for the organizers of this event, because as I start taking off down this path, the guy with the chainsaw starts to yell, Tim, it's me, it's Kevin. You're supposed to go that way. The guy with the chainsaw was supposed to give you directions. Now, I don't know about you, but if a guy with a chainsaw jumps out at me, I'm not gonna ask him for directions. I'm going to start running. And so that's exactly what I did. I took off down the wrong path entirely. I was supposed to take this nice gentle turn into the forest. Instead, I took off this way at full speed. Now, I think they had a suspicion that somebody might get lost at some point, and so in order to like, make sure that people didn't go the wrong way, they had very wisely taken a large tree and braced it about chest height across the path. You know where this story is going. Me, in all of my vigor to get away from Kevin, Kevin with his chainsaw, took off running full stride. And I was looking back to make sure everybody else was either getting attacked by him or whatever. He wasn't chasing me. That's all I was concerned about. And and I still remember to this day the sensation. It was a magical moment where this log hit my chest at full speed. Now, you can imagine what happened to my upper body, right? It hits the tree and stops. Also, because you probably know physics, you can imagine what happened to my lower body. It kept going. So my legs, full stride, continued on. And I went entirely horizontal uh, and flopped back onto my back. That was the start. It got worse from there, but that's enough for today. Side note, if you're ever planning a haunted forest, don't make Kevin the guy with the chainsaw in charge of directions. That is a terrible idea. But what I want us to think through today is, in that moment, my whole body, my mind, took over into a fascinating journey because of a simple thing called fear. When fear hits us, suddenly our decision-making process is entirely changed. I normally would not run full speed into a log. That's not typically my everyday experience. But in that moment, that's all I could think to do was to run. You know, fight or flight, as they say. These instincts kick in, and suddenly we find ourselves in a different situation. We have this adrenaline to do almost anything sometimes, but also this, this ability to do almost nothing sometimes. We want to do everything and nothing. We want to run and we want to hide and we want to fight and we want to cower. Everything and nothing all at once. It can alter our perception of a situation in an instant, but then what's fascinating is that experience can stay with you. That moment of fear can sit with you for hours or, or weeks or, or, or months or In my case, years. I can still remember, even as I'm telling you, I can feel my adrenaline kicking in because I remember that experience of Kevin with his chainsaw. Fear can stick with us. We can still recall and feel and even revisit those moments in our minds as if it was happening again right here. You've probably had one of those experiences. Hopefully yours wasn't being chased by Kevin with a chainsaw, but maybe you somewhere have this moment of fear, and, and yours might be a more serious example than mine, but we know what that feels like. Where our course, our trajectory, our experience was altered by this moment, sometimes instantaneously, where fear shows up and we have to deal with it in that moment. This morning, I want us to step into a conversation about our fears. And I wanna challenge you to think about if there's areas of your life, or work, or relationships, or even how you view yourself, or maybe even how you view God, that are impeded by fears. That something somewhere in your past, something somewhere in your journey or your experience, has had this fearful response, this moment of, I don't know what to do in this situation, and I don't like it. And because of that, your trajectory, your journey has been altered. And I want us to consider how maybe with God's help, we can work through some of this together. My hope in all of this is to encourage you, to perhaps share a different perspective on your situations, but ultimately, I want us to create a space for the Holy Spirit to meet with you in this, to sit with you this morning, to be present with you, right where you are in every sense of the word. And to do so, we're going to actually take a look at one of the strangest passages in the Bible. Um, I need you to know that I, I grew up uh, going to a Christian elementary school. I've, I've been around church literally since I was six days old. I was born on a Monday and went to church on the Sunday. That's that's I've been I've been here. I've heard the stories, and and it was actually a, 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 quite a few months ago now. I was sitting in this church singing the song that we sang this morning, and there's a line in that song that I don't know whether you catch it because we all sang it. I was looking around and nobody's. What is this about? There's a song that says, there's a line that says, just ask the man who was thrown on the bones of Elisha if, what, what, if there's anything God cannot do. And I remember sitting, hearing that line, and saying, wait a minute, what? The man who was thrown on the bones of Elisha? I've never seen that in a flanograph. I've never heard that in a story that was not at my VBS. I've never heard about the man who was thrown in the bones of Elijah. And I remember saying, I've got to know more about this passage, and i got to lean into it. And so here we are this morning. Interestingly, whenever I like to speak, I usually like to speak on passages that I'm really comfortable with and familiar with. This is one of them that I'm not so much. And I think God has a wonderful sense of humor. Because as we think about fear, as we think about stepping into places that we're not quite sure we want to go, God invited me into this very strange, very weird passage for us this morning. And so here we are. And so I hope you can sit in it with me this morning. Let me just pray as we get started, and then we'll dive in. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy, for your forgiveness. God, thank you that you are with us even in moments of fear. God, thank you that nothing is too big or scary for you. God, thank you that you are bigger than the boogeyman. So God, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we consider the things that are maybe holding us back from following you. God, give us a spirit of courage today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would minister to us in maybe some of those places that are hard to deal with even today as we sit here together, and that you would bless our time and bless this conversation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our passage comes from 2 Kings 13. Um, Maybe some of you are much smarter than me and you heard Bones of Elijah and you said, oh, clearly 2 Kings chapter 13. But if you didn't, that's where we are, in 2 Kings chapter 13. And this is coming to the end of Elijah's life. We're going to begin looking in verse 14 and kind of play around in this passage a little bit. Verse 14 says this, it says that when Elisha was in his last illness, King uh, King Jehoash or Joash, depending on on your translation of Israel, is that he visited him and he wept over him. And this king comes to Elijah and he says, my father, my father, I see chariots and charioteers of Israel. And he's crying and he is upset because he realizes that he's in this moment of conflict and, and there's going to be a crisis at hand. The first thing we see right off the bat about this king is that he's afraid. He's already afraid. That's our introduction to him in this passage. What do we know about him? We can look back a few verses if you look back to verse 10. It says that Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, began to rule over Israel in the 37th year of King Josiah's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria for 16 years, but he did what was evil in the sight of, in, the, in, the, in the Lord's sight. He refused to turn from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who lived in Israel and what the things that he committed. That's interesting. It alludes to his father, so now we've got to figure out, what, is his, what's, what about his father? What do we know? We've got to look back a few more verses, and you look back to verse 1. And it says, "Jehoash son of Jehu, began to rule over Israel in the 23rd year of King Joash's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria for 17 years. Again, this is familiar, but he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and he followed the example of Jeroboam son of Nebat, continuing the sins of Jeroboam that, that he had led Israel to commit. What I want you to get from that is that this, this progression of sin goes back quite a few ways. We had this king, and we heard that this king did what his father did, and his father did what this other guy did. I just want to, a moment, think about this poor fellow, that his legacy is he's known in the Bible as the guy that did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he's a reference point for everybody else that does evil in the sight of the Lord. This is an interesting moment, an interesting thing to note. So it begs the question for me, what did Jeroboam son of Nebat do? Also, I've never seen that in a flannel graph. You have to go back to 1 Kings chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, to find out what this king did. Let me read it for you. So the king consulted, and he made two gold calves, and he said to them, it's too much for you to go all the way to Jerusalem. So behold your gods, O Israel. These are the gods, actually, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. He's pointing to two golden calves. And he's saying, it's too, it's too much work for you to go all the way to Jerusalem, Let me just make two calves for you. They're right here. Actually, these kind of represent the God that brought you out of Egypt. It's fine. Just worship these ones instead. And he set one in Bethel, and he puts the other in a place called Dan. Now, this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before one uh, as as far as Dan, and he made houses on high places, and he made priests among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. There's a lot going on here in this passage that we need to understand. And basically, the the bottom of it is, is, it's interesting to say he doesn't say go worship, don't go worship God, but instead he says going all the way to Jerusalem to worship God in the way that God intended is just too hard. It's too much work. You don't have to walk all that way. And in fact, what I'm going to do, guys, I'm going to bring it closer to you. I'm going to make two calves, and not just one, but two for your convenience. And actually, you know what? It's too much work to find, you know, priests just in the house of Levi. So I'm going to expand the rules a little bit. Even though God was very clear, we should only worship one God. We should worship him in this place, and we should only have priests of Levi. I'm on your side. I'm going to make it easier for you. So I'm just going to make some priests from other places, some guys that are really good at stuff, and, and they're just going to be priests here as well. And he actually implies that they're still worshiping the same God when they're worshiping these golden calves. They just didn't need to go all the way to the temple. He sets up his own priests. he sets up his own way of doing things, and and he sets up his own places of worship. And I think what's happening is that it's just to make it easier. This is the legacy that's passed down through generation and generation and ends up with King Jehoash. There's two things that I want to suggest. One is there's a drive to, 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 to gain control. God's given us lots of rules about lots of things. I think we could change them a little bit to make it easier for us. Which leads us into the second thing, this drive just to make things easier. Worshiping God is hard. Following God is hard, and so wouldn't it be nice if we could just make it easier? Make it more convenient. Make it fit into your schedule better. And I think that's what's happening here. I want you to hold on to this notion that going all the way to Jerusalem was just too much, and we'll look back at our passage. Remember that it says that Elijah's health was failing. The king has, has had has had Elijah in his life, in his ministry, in his, in his reign for a long time. And, and Elisha has been a support and a confidant to him. In many ways, Elijah has been the king's security blanket. Think about Linus with that blue blanket that he drags around in peanuts. Elisha has kind of been that. If you have a king that wants control and he wants things to be easy, having a guy that speaks for God right in your, in your pocket is easy. It's good. It's helpful. And that's what Elijah had been for him. And he looks out the window and he sees this army that's rising up against him, and he panics, and he wants to find a way out, as is his typical way of being. And so he engages with Elijah, and I want you to see what Elijah does. This is in verse 15. Elijah says to him, go and get a bow and get some arrows. So the king does as he's told. And then Elijah tells him, put your hand on the bow, and Elijah put his hand on the king's hand, and then he commanded him, shoot an arrow out the window. I hope nobody was out the other side of the window. So he opens the window and he shoots it out. And Elijah proclaims, this is the Lord's arrow, an arrow of victory over Aram for you, and you will completely conquer the Amorians at Aphek. And then he says, this is a weird thing, he says, now pick up another arrow. Pick up some some more arrows. Told you, this is a weird passage. Let me ask you this. Put yourself in the king's sandals for a moment. I'm Elijah, and I say to you, pick up some arrows. How many do you pick up? What a weird question. Pick up some arrows. How many? For me, I would be saying, uh, you know, for me, the instructions aren't clear enough. The lack of clarity is very challenging. I'm not sure how to proceed. And I think it would probably, for me, elicit more fear. And perhaps different kinds of fear. Maybe the fear of not meeting expectation. Elijah, how many, how many arrows do you want me to pick up? Like, what's the, what's the situation here? Or maybe the fear of disappointing others, or maybe the fear of simply not doing it right. Maybe some of you carry some of those fears with you. And so we're told that the king picked them up. He, he, the, the king ends up picking up um, three arrows. He picks up three arrows, and he strikes the ground with them three times. And the man of God, Elisha, gets angry at him. And he says, you only struck the ground, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have beaten Aram, and it would have been, been entirely destroyed, but now you're only going to have three victories. He says, strike the ground with some arrows. He picks him up, he hits three times, I guess that's enough, one, two, three. And Elijah says, you should have hit it five or six or seven times or more times because then you would have wiped out the entire army. If I am the king in this moment, I am frustrated. Can I get a do-over? Your instructions were not good enough. Why didn't you tell me to strike it a million times? I would, have, I would have been here all day tapping the ground with these arrows and we would have had a wonderful victory. Why didn't you give me the full details? How is that even fair? What's interesting, I think, is the task at hand was clear. Pick up some arrows and strike the ground. But the king took it upon himself to do just what was enough to get by. Just enough. Kind of like creating some calves out of gold so people don't have to walk all the way to Jerusalem. Or going through the hassle of appointing the right priests. Or, you know, actually really worshiping God the way that he intended. It's in this moment, I just want to pause for a second and point out the power of patterns. Patterns. And I wonder how often we let our habits or our routines or our rituals impact our choices. I think many times, unfortunately, maybe consciously or unconsciously, we find ourselves looking for the path of least resistance. Right? We stick to what is comfortable. We stick to what is known. We don't want to push ourselves too hard or too far or put ourselves out there too much. And so we settle for the things that we know, for our experiences, even if it's not healthy or helpful. And I think that's what's happening here. I think this king is playing with a, with a legacy of lethargy. He's doing all of, what's, doing all of what's right seems too hard or it's too much of an imposition, and so it's avoided or at least not done to the fullest extent that it could be. He taps the ground three times instead of a bunch of times. He doesn't want you to walk all the way to Jerusalem. That's too far. He doesn't want you to have to worship God entirely. Just worship close enough. He doesn't want you to have to make your own, find this specific priests, just make your own. And he doesn't lean into the things that could have been done. So, in light of all this, let me ask you a question. Has God ever asked you to do something, and you knew that he had asked you, but you ended up doing it half heartedly? God put something on your mind, a conversation, uh, an experience, something that you needed to step out and try and do, and, and you did it mostly. You trusted almost all the way. You leaned in, but not quite fully maybe you were unsure of the outcome you weren't sure how people would respond what if i speak too boldly what if i say too much what if i engage too completely maybe you were trying to fit it into all the other good things that you were doing maybe you didn't have clarity like how i would be if i was told to tap the ground with some arrows and so you just kind of tap three times just try a little bit you don't want to put yourself out there entirely what after all are going to be the implications if i act and maybe you just didn't give it the attention that you should have because there were other things on your mind. See, Elisha in this moment knew that God was willing to entirely deliver the Israelites from the Syrians. And he told the king to strike the ground with some arrows. And the king responds in this half-hearted manner with three little taps. He didn't really understand why Elijah had asked him to do it, and I don't know that he even necessarily believed that God could entirely release his nation and free them from the task at hand. And so as a result, the king wins three battles. But he didn't win as many as he could have. God had so much more in store for him, and he just got what he was willing to go for. And it makes me wonder, do I do that? Do I do that? Does God invite me into things, and I don't get to experience the fullness of it, not because of any fault on God's side, but because of my lack of courage, my fears, my lack of faith to step out? Do I keep God's benevolence in check because I'm not fully willing to trust him? I think about my own kids and I think about the things that I would give to them and I want to give to them, but sometimes they just don't ask or they don't respond right or their actions make me withhold some things from them because I just can't trust them with it. And I wonder if our heavenly father looks at us the same way. I've got so much good stuff for you. You have no idea what I have in store for you, but we can't be faithful with the small things. He can't give us the big things. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's fear. Let me try and articulate perhaps some of the fears that we're journeying with or carrying. What are some of the things we're afraid of? Some of the things that maybe we think will happen if we strike the ground a few more times. Maybe God will ignore you. Maybe you're afraid that if you trust and if you ask and if you step out, God's going to ignore you. Or maybe he'll be angry at you for asking for too much. Or maybe you're going to feel foolish or like you've made some kind of mistake. Or perhaps on the other side, you're afraid of God actually answering. And not just answering, but asking you to step out more. You think you're stretching yourself, let me stretch you into further. Maybe it's the fear that you won't be enough for what comes. If you actually follow through. If God actually follows through. What if you step out in faith and God puts you in a situation and and then suddenly he realizes that he made a mistake and you're the wrong person to be there in the first place. Imposter syndrome is very real. And so we have this king in this moment who was invited to step out potentially into untapped resources. And because he only taps three times, he misses out. And again, I wonder sometimes for us what is God wanting us to be a part of? What's the impact that he wants you to have in your neighborhood, at your office, in your school? that we're simply too busy or, or too lethargic or too complacent to step into. And so we miss it. Let's look a little bit further into this passage and see how things shape up. So there's that exchange with the king, which is fascinating. And then here we are, we're told very unceremoniously in verse 20 that Elisha died and was buried. That's it. Elisha, this man of God, this and all these things. And it's, oh, by the way, Elisha was died, died and was buried. Commentators writing on this passage, of which there are not many, for the record, not many people play around with this passage, they point to this being another instance of opportunity of fear on the part of the king. The context seems to imply that the king thought that Elijah was his good luck charm. That as long as Elijah is around, as long as he is speaking, as long as he is present with me, which is probably why he called him into his chamber in the first place when he saw the enemies coming against him, as long as Elijah was there, we're going to be fine. Rather than putting his faith and his focus on God, he had followed his legacy and said, let me just make it a little bit easier and trust the guy I can see in the room. Let me not think about having to trust the God that's over here that I can't quite comprehend, and I can touch Elisha, he's right there, so I'm going to trust that guy. And so all of his confidence was in Elisha, and God beautifully, unceremoniously takes Elisha out of the picture. Elisha's dead, and he's buried. He's buried. And you can imagine that in this moment, I think the king was probably afraid that all of the prophecies, all of the things that Elijah had said and done suddenly were now null and void because he wasn't there, because his focus was in the wrong place. So let's see what happens. Elijah is dead and buried. We're told in this passage that a group of Moabite raiders used to come and invade the land each spring. So as the Israelites are kind of living, going about their business, this group, these Moabite raiders will come in and will just raid things and take them. And one day, some Israelites were burying a man. So their friend had died. They're carrying him. Imagine it's a funeral procession. They've got their friend up on their shoulders. They're carrying him through. They see this band of raiders coming. They're afraid of what they're going to do to their friend, whether they're going to loot the body, whatever they're going to do. And so they panic in this moment. And it says that they hastily threw the corpse of their friend into the tomb of Elijah, and they run away. Good friends. Funeral's over, no more sandwiches, in the thing, off they go. And this is where our song comes in, and this passage, it makes me lovingly giggle, because I love it. It says, as soon as the body touched Elijah's bones, the dead man revived and jumped up to his feet. Just ask the man who was thrown in the bows of Elijah if there's anything God cannot do. This guy is dead, not like mostly dead, fully dead, like he is right on dead. And he's thrown unceremoniously into a tomb, happens to graze another corpse, which is weird, and comes back to life. What was that guy thinking when he popped, how did I get here? Right? Last time I was, al- I was at home in my bed, my loved ones were there, it was a beautiful moment, I just drifted off, and now I'm in some other, who's that guy? Right? In this instant, and it, he doesn't just say like he doesn't like like ceremoniously like he doesn't like gently rise, it says he, he comes back to life and he jumps to his feet. Cha-pong! What a weird story. What a weird story. It's bizarre. It defies all human reasoning. It cracks me up actually that many Bible commentators actually skip over those verses. Like, they'll have beautiful things about the rest of the passage, and then this weird bit, they're like, and then some guy came back to life when he touched Elijah's bones. Moving on. Because there's no logical or theological way to explain what's happening other than God did something really cool. Although several make the case that this was God showing the king that he would continue to be with Israel even after Elijah's death. And here's what I think is fascinating. There is no better way to show the king that Elijah had literally nothing to do with it than by having him do a miracle when he's dead. Right? Elijah's bones did not say the right words. Elijah's bones were not living a righteous life. They were dead. They were not living any kind of life. Elijah's bones were passive. They were stagnant. They were literally decaying. They were dead. And yet God's power continues to work through the bones of a dead man. And not just kind of, enough to bring another dead man back to life. It doesn't bring Elijah back to life, which is an interesting concept to think about, but it brings this other man back to life in this moment simply by contact. It's interesting to note that when Elijah was alive, his job was to be God's mouthpiece. He was a prophet, someone that spoke for God, that brought his word, but ironically, when you read through scriptures, we actually know very little of the words that Elijah says. We have lots of the words of other prophets, but we have very few of Elisha's actual words. But we know the things that he did. He healed Jericho's water. He increased the widow's oil. He he raised the Shumanite's son. He purified a pot of poisoned stew, which is very helpful. Uh, He fed a hundred men from a sack of grain, and so on and so on. He did things. God did things through him. And so it's fitting that now there's another miracle performed through him after his death. For all of Elijah's miracles, God was continuing to speak through his prophet, speaking in a way that words could never express. And what was God saying? That God is almighty, not Elisha, not the king, God is. That God is merciful, not Elijah, not the king, God is. That God is the one who saves and delivers and works ma- powerfully and mightily through his people, not Elisha, not the king, God does. God did not need Elisha to even be breathing to work through him. This is a good check for some of us who who we might think that God is lucky to have us. You know, it's good for God that we're around because he could really use us because we're pretty great. God could use the bones of a dead man to bring somebody else back to life. And if you're here with a lack of confidence, let that boost your confidence. God can use the bones of a dead guy to bring somebody else back to life. Imagine what he could do with you who actually has air in your lungs, and you're breathing, and you're alive, and you can say things. Elisha's life of faith did not end with his life. Let me say that again. Elisha's life of faith did not end with his life. The faithfulness continued, not because of who Elisha was, but because of who God is. The resurrection in this passage literally has nothing to do with Elijah. He's dead. But it's about what God continued to do through him. And what I see here is the comparison of two legacies. You have a legacy of lethargy, and you have this legacy of faithfulness and and trust. And someone who wants to pursue after God, even if he didn't understand it, I have no doubt there were moments where Elijah didn't know what he was doing either. Where he was curious and wondering and maybe had doubts and, and, and... couldn't see the big picture of what God was doing, but he continued to trust him. And he did hard things, and he put himself in hard situations, unlike the king and his legacy that just wanted to make things easier. So what are we supposed to do with this strange event? What can this possibly mean for our lives? For me, it takes me back to some of our earlier thoughts around this legacy and these patterns, and how our decisions today, even if they seem small or insignificant, actually build a case for future faithfulness or not? Today, you're going to have decisions in front of you, decisions that will give you the opportunity to obey God or not, to listen to God or not, to follow God or not, to trust God or not. And what I want us to think through is that each of those decisions can work together to build a journey, a pattern, a system of doing things. And each of those decisions, even though they might seem so small and so tiny today, can maybe actually impact your future responses next time the opportunity arises. That as we get comfortable saying no to what God's asking us to do, it becomes easier and easier and easier to say no. When we get comfortable saying that's too hard, you're asking too much for me, it's easier and easier and easier to continue to say that but if we say yes and yes and yes it's like improv it's no there's no no it's yes and we keep moving we keep moving forward what does god want you to do we begin to see god's faithfulness and i know that there are stories in this room who, of people who can say i said yes at a really hard time and god showed up in a beautiful way and then i got to say yes again and then i got to say yes again and i got to say yes again and you know what god has never let me down I think Elijah would say that. I know I can say that. I'm sure some of us in this room can say that, that the God continues to work and to move, but we have to trust him each and every day. It's one foot in front of the other. Let me try and distill all of this down, all of our thoughts about facing fear, about this concept of legacy, about how we wrestle with God and how he taps into us and invites us to do things and in these invitations. Let me try and bring all this down into a couple of questions for us. Here's one big question that I want you to think about. What are you afraid of asking God to do that you're worried he might actually follow through and say yes on? What are you afraid of asking God to do that he might actually say yes and that makes you nervous? God, I want to be a better witness at my job. What if he says yes, go for it? God, I want to have that hard conversation with my neighbor or or my coworker or a family member. And, And what if he actually says, yep, now's the time, go do it. God, I want to I want to know what it means to sacrifice for you. What if he says, "Yeah, okay, great. Let me take some things away from you." God, I want to trust you with my finances. What if he says, "Okay, great. Let me let me test you on that." What are the things that you're afraid of asking God to do because he might actually say yes? What is he inviting you to step into that your word may actually happen? And I know this may seem like a bit of a counterintuitive question. I mean, of course we want God to answer what we ask, but but do we always? What about when there's a cost to us? What about if we could find ourselves in a challenging situation or a conversation? What if it requires sacrifice? What if it means that other things, even good things, need to be put on hold or stopped altogether? What if it requires patience or trust? It's hard. Here's the second question that I want you to ponder is if that one isn't big enough for you. What kind of wake are you leaving behind you? I always think about a boat, and when a boat goes through, it leaves the the wake behind it, and you can see the impact of that boat being there. And I wonder sometimes, I like to, it's weird, but I try to visualize when I walk through a room, what is the wake that I'm leaving behind me? What is the impact that my presence is having on other people? Are they saying, oh, good, I'm glad glad that guy's out of the room? If that's you, please don't say that to me because that'll hurt my heart. Um, Or are they saying, oh, I feel great because he was here? What's the legacy that you leave behind? Is it positivity? Is it negativity? Are are you the sort of person that can show you everything that's wrong in a room and just say, deal with it and walk away? What are the things that we're leaving behind us? What's the the wake that that is following us? What is our legacy? Is it one of fear or is it one of trust? Is it one of complacency or is it one of commitment? I think about this a lot when I think about my kids and I wonder what they see in me. What faith qualities am I passing along to them by transfer? What do they see in their dad by the way that I live my life, by the way that that we follow the things that God invites us into? What do they see in me with how I react and respond? If there was a story like the story from 2 Kings written about Carson, son of Tim, um, you know, and it said that he followed the example of Tim, son of Ken, what what would that story be? What's that legacy? that I'm leaving behind for those that are looking to me. I in no means intend this to be a guilt trip. That's not what this is about. But rather a reminder, I think, to think beyond the moment and to think about what each moment brings to the next and to the next and to the next. And when we find ourselves in these places where God is inviting us into something more, what are we going to let take the lead? Fear or faithfulness? And honestly, much like the miracle at hand today, there is only one source, one power that can make a difference. This is not a you just try harder sermon. That's not what this is about. This is a you're the bones of Elisha and God can work through you even though you're dead. God can continue to work through you and it's not about what you bring to the table other than your faithfulness and your willingness and your yes to let God use you. And so what are the things that God is inviting you into? What are the opportunities? What are the circumstances? What are the situations that are right in front of you that God wants to use to make a significant impact. I, I, I wanna know the rest of the story about what happened to that guy. Like we don't even know, how does he get out of the tomb? Do his friends come back? Like imagine they've run away and their friend pops back to life in the tomb of Elijah. Eventually, hopefully he misses the Moabite Raiders and he comes out and he strolls home and he walks back into his neighborhood. Weren't you the guy that we just buried? You know, like, Yep. And I wonder what happens with the rest of that story, the legacy that that brings of the fact that God's power worked in me. I literally did nothing. Like, I didn't ask for anything. I was dead, too. And the guy that brought me back to life, he was dead, too. And nobody else was there but God. What are the stories that would have come from that, the impact that it would have had on their friends, on that man, on, on the broader culture of what's happening around them? And I want to know what are the things that God wants you to be a part of that could change the lives of people around you? What impact could your simple yes have? Your simple willingness to put your fear aside, not maybe make it go away, but put it aside enough to step out, to speak up, to stand up, to show love to somebody that is maybe pretty unlovable, to have courage to have those conversations that you know you need to have, to, to be maybe more generous with what you have in front of you. What are those things that God is inviting you into that in each of those moments become part of the legacy that you're leaving behind? In all of these things, it's the presence of God at work in and through you that makes a difference. And so it's fitting that we take some time just to pray and to bring some of these things before God. As we wrap up, and the worship team can come up if you'd like to, we're gonna just take a moment to pray. Uh, And I wanna invite you just to consider some of these questions, uh, consider some of these things about what is the stuff that God is putting in front of you? What do you actually have in your hands? Uh, And I wanna, again, just invite you as we pray, you can put your hands out. the reason that this is helpful sometimes, we've just come through Thanksgiving. If I asked for a bowl of mashed potatoes, but I sat there like this, I'm not ready to receive it. There's something physical about, about asking for something with your arms open, because you're ready to receive it. And so I want to invite you, if you're comfortable, just to put your hands out. You're just asking God, what is it that you want me to be a part of? What are you inviting me into? What do you have for me today? Where are maybe some fears that I need to let go of? And what are some things that you want to put in their place? And so I'm just going to lead us in prayer. I'm going to give us some time for a little bit of quiet uh, and then I'll close off our time. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you are with us, that you love us. God, thank you that you are bigger than our fears, but also thank you that you can see past them and through them and you want us to be a part of more of what you're doing. God, help us to see your kingdom in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our families. And so God, even as we sit here, I pray that you would help us even now maybe to visualize some of the fears that we're holding in our hands and to release them to you. That you would help us to see the things that you want to deposit in us. Your strength, your presence, your power, your courage. And so God, as we take even just a moment now, I pray that you would speak to each one. Holy Spirit, come and fill this space. Fill our hearts, fill our minds, and be present with us. God, we thank you for this moment of quiet with you. God, thank you that this conversation is just starting. So even as we sing, God, give us courage to go back to the prayer corner to have somebody pray with us. Minister to us as we uh, go to your table at the back. God, give us courage maybe even to get up and go to speak to somebody. God, thank you that you are at work. Thank you that you love us. And we pray that you would continue to be present with us here. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray, amen.